Welcome to the Musea podcast. I want to give a quick note before we get started with this episode. We're going to be taking a break from the podcast for a little bit. I really appreciate everybody that has come on the podcast in the last seven months. really appreciate James Sweeting for helping with the editing on all these episodes. We are just going to take a small break for a few months. We've got some other things at Musea we really need to work on. And then we'll eventually bring the podcast back with more episodes. So this is not a permanent thing, but a uh, temporary thing. And I went ahead and just took down the Patreon page so people would not be billed for that while we're on a break. And I will look at that. We might bring the Patreon page back or I might just do something different when the podcast launches again. But just want to say thanks for all the listeners, all the feedback we've had the last six, seven months. And uh, I think you will really like this episode. So thank you so much for uh, listening. All right. Talk to you soon. Hi, I'm Emily Garthwaite and I'm a street photographer and photojournalist from London. I think initially I was much more interested in painting and drawing. That's how it all sort of started. And then I was allowed to borrow my mother's camera when I was around kind of 14, 15. And there was a forest fire at home. And that's the kind of first memory that I have of wanting to show people what had happened in my local area. And I spent all my time in those woods building dens with my siblings and walking the dogs. And when I saw that miles and miles of this land were being burnt to the ground, my first instinct was to pick up a camera and photograph it and then send it to my local newspaper. And I'd been asked this question and I sort of sat on it and I realised that that was probably the start. I don't think that's normally the most natural response for people to go and do that. (laughs) And I felt that I needed to because... Otherwise, how would people know it had happened? And then after that, I continued kind of painting and drawing. I was at a boarding school, and a very rural one in England, and there was hardly sort of street life or interesting stories. It's a very kind of isolated area, and you have little exposure to the outside world in many ways. So I think photography really picked up for me once I'd left school and I could start to kind of take control of my own experiences and and have a lot of freedom. And it was definitely my way of exploring the world when it had a proper purpose. You know, if you've got a camera in your hand, it's much easier to sort of approach people. And I wouldn't want to stop someone on the street and just strike up conversation. But if I've got a camera, I can do that. People don't think it's weird. Mm -hmm. So it opened doors for me when I left school. And certainly when I started to travel, it just snowballed from there, really. Mm. You went to school, did you get your master's, is that correct? I went to Central St. Martins, it's an art college in London, and I did a foundation there, it's about eight months. Okay. And I got put into the film and photography part of the course, which I was really frustrated about. I wanted (laughs) to be a painter, and everyone was saying I should be a photographer. And at the time, I was photographing club nights to make some money, and you know, it was very much like photography was just something that I did, and it was never really attached to anything. And then I left and I started assisting photographers. I didn't go and do an undergrad, much to the kind of shock of my parents. (laughs) And I started assisting some wonderful, wonderful photographers. Some were, you know, much older and had photographed Vogue covers back in the 70s and 60s. And some were in their late 20s, sort of breaking out into the fashion industry. So it was a really nice kind of contrast. But again, it was all fashion. Mm -hmm. And I didn't love it enough. But I knew that I loved photography. And so then I ended up starting to travel and I went to, that was the first time that I went to India. And it's only recently last year that I actually did a master's. So I'd already been working as a photographer for a long time. So it was more of a pause for me to, to kind of hone in on exactly where I wanted to go. I hadn't done that, you know? Mm Mm-hmm. Did you find the master's was really beneficial for you to clarify things? It was interesting because I started obviously with, when I went to go and kind of interview to go on the master's, you know, I arrived with my India work. And then when I started the course, they kind of broke it down a lot. It was much more conceptual, much more documentary photography. It was different to how I liked working. Mm -hmm. And they weren't particularly keen on street photography. And a lot of the things that I loved, I, I sort of felt were wrong to like. It was kind of cliched in their eyes. So I sort of adapted to it. And I tried different things, whether it was just trying to tell a story from photographing the interiors of someone's home rather than photographing them. That was one of the first projects. And I really enjoyed the challenge of that. You know, how can you 
show an audience what a person is like just from the contents of their home. And we're talking, you know, the, the actual textiles and the textures and the marks where there was a lovely armchair where the man he'd always sat and the fabric had been worn away just where his arm always rested. Mm. You know, it's these sorts of details. And I really enjoyed that. And then I sort of came full circle though. I sort of gave it all a go and I thought, ultimately, I've got to stay true to what I love. And if I try and emulate someone else or kind of pine to what this course is telling me I should be producing, then it's not right. So I just thought I might as well just do what I do and just listen to that. And I moved a lot away from documentary photography and moved into street photography. And it was just a whole new way of working. It was liberating to not have to put so much weight on a picture. You know, sometimes a picture is just great because Mm -hmm. it is. I don't need to tell you in a caption. It can just speak for itself, however which way people interpret it. Yeah, and that was very liberating. It was the antithesis of my master's. That's interesting. I would love for you to kind of explain for you what the distinction is between documentary photography and street photography, because I think a lot of people would maybe lump them together. That's quite interesting, because I never really think of them being together. I mean, I think there are so many genres of photography that I think it's a real shame in some ways, because you sort of have to identify yourself now as many categories, you know? Mm-hmm. You know, you can be a still life photographer, fine art photographer, fashion photographer, documentary, photojournalism, street photography, visual artist. There's all of these kind of terms to kind of identify yourself as where you fit. But, you know, I want to feel quite liberated that I could as easily move into kind of still life or fashion as I could into photojournalism or street. I think photojournalism slash documentary photography are very much similar in terms of the storytelling. I mean, classic kind of photojournalism is more, you know, news related, whilst documentary is much more kind of artistic, poetic. I think more of books than I do of news, you know? Right. And then street photography kind of stands on its own in a way, but then there are still, you know, restrictions. I mean, uh, I'm part of a collective called Street Photography International. There's four street photographers and we formed it almost two years ago. And even then we sometimes get comments. If the photograph's not on a street, on a concrete pavement, people will say, that's not street. (laughs) You know, it's sort of, (laughs) it makes me think, well, I don't know. What is street? Does it have to be, you know, not all places in the world have streets as such. You know, they might be dusty roads. They might be, you know, there was a picture that I had posted from Ethiopia that was the equivalent of someone's city street, you know? Mm-hmm. I don't think we should, you know, restrict these genres too much. So I try to be a bit of them all and just kind of enjoy it yeah. and hope that those kind of boundaries will lessen as the years go by, really. Mm-hmm. I think what I learn on the streets in London whether it's shooting from the hip, whether it is approaching people, whether it's just waiting for someone to walk into that stretch of light or examining geometry, everything that I learn in those kind of inverted commas training sessions come into play when I then go and work. It's such an important skill, actually, because if I haven't taken pictures for a while, you know, I'm in the same way a musician or a chef or whoever it may be, you're kind of out of sync. So I use it, you know, just to tune my eye in. So I'm always kind of ready to see that photograph. Mm-hmm. I was reading on your, uh, I think it was another interview you did. You said you have uh, synesthesia. Yes. Talk about that and how that kind of relates to color for you. Well, I always thought I couldn't read. I never wanted to tell anyone. I found it so hard to look at the page because the words would disappear. <laughs> And I thought it was something to do with just practice, you know? Hmm. I thought, well, maybe I'm just just out of practice of, of reading. And um, I then went to go and get my eyes tested again to see if I needed glasses. And they said, no, you don't need reading glasses at all. And I said, well, why can't I see the words? Because they, they move and they float around and it gives me a headache. And, and I said, likewise, when I'm not looking at a, at a book, when I'm looking around, I can also have a very, very kind of, kind of intense experiences around color or lack of. And so they started to do these kind of glasses tests, which they'd kind of do for people with dyslexia as well. And just putting colored screens over and and seeing how I responded to these little colored kind of plates over the top. 
And then uh, much to my family's amusement, it turns out that my optimum eye sort of color, colored glass is rose. So everyone was laughing, <laughs> saying I live my life through rose tinted glasses. And yeah. I used to wear them all the time. Right. And then, you know, I looked a little bit like Bono, you know, <laughs> it looked like it was much more of a fashion choice uh-huh. than something for my eyesight. So I stopped it, but it definitely helped me see the world in a kind of clearer way. But now I find that kind of synesthesia and kind of the way that I see the world has really helped me take photographs because in the same way that people see a lot of light, I see a lot of color, not color matching, you know, you know, someone wearing blue against a blue wall. I, I think it's more than that. It's how, how in the same way light can lead you to the, the kind of main part of the photograph. I believe that colour can do the same. And I, I think they're the same. I think light and colour, the way I experience it, they are identical. And certain colours, which I realise when I look at my pictures, I have favourite, I have colours I'm obviously really drawn to because of my associations with them. And you'll find them in, in all my photographs. Sometimes it's the same tone of yellow. There's certain reds and yeah, primary colors are the ones I'm most drawn to. Mm. So for the synesthesia, if people don't know, it's like where your senses almost get crossed. Yeah, yeah, your senses can cross over. And I first found out about it after I'd gone to that opticians. And then I started to research it more. And then actually, one of my best friends, her, her brother-in-law, he was at Cambridge. And I think he was actually looking, he was studying it at the time. And we spoke about it quite a lot. And whilst I've never had like a full, I've never actually gone to a doctor to have the the diagnosis, but it's pretty clear if you have it or not. And mine is, for me, when I see colours, I, I, I can smell them and very, very intensely. And smell for me, the actual smells, well, anyone that knows me, I mean, I'm a perfume fiend, essential <laughs> oils, anything. And I have the most intense associations with them. You know, so I will no longer use a smell because it was used at a certain time. It was only when I first found out that that was kind of something quite unique that I spent a lot of time kind of looking at a colour and trying to be really conscious of what I was experiencing. And now I barely ever even think about it because it's just your way of seeing, isn't it? Mm-hmm. We never talk about how people taste or see or touch, you know, because it's just assumed we're all the same. But I think it's a really, really wonderful thing. I can't imagine not having it because it it makes the world kind of richer, you know, and everything's attached to experiences as well. Mm. A lot of colours have got associations, no doubt from when I was younger. Mm -hmm. Just to give somebody an example, like what is a colour that you have that you have a specific association with like a certain smell? I'm trying to think of a particular one in the room right now. There's a certain type of yellow. I'd have to show you the type of yellow. And... For me, it smells of burning wood, hmm. really, really kind of like rich, smoky, burning wood. And it's one of my favorite smells. I don't know how it works, though. <laughs> I don't know why. Yeah. But it is. It absolutely is. Yeah. And yeah, I mean, there are certain places in the world that are amazing for, for that kind of sensory experience. India is one. But it's amazing in London. It's so muted. You know, mm. I don't experience it much. When I go to see my to see my family in the countryside, and I and if I go for a walk, I mean anyone would think I was barking mad. <laughs> Just, <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Then I really experience it. Right. So let's get into your work a little bit. You've done a lot in India, obviously, and so I just wanted to start with like what draws you to India, like why I go there so much. So the first time I went, my grandmother had died only a few weeks before and my mother and I we'd um, decided on this yeah drunken evening that I'd, I'd take kind of granny's ashes to to India and she'd grown up in Assam in northeast India and she loved her time there and she was very troubled she had severe dementia so I never actually got to speak to her about her experiences there was there was one repetitive story in her later years about a, uh, a Bengal tiger in her local area. I know that story was very familiar. But other than that, a lot of those stories were lost, which was just such a shame. But I felt a lot in common with her. And she was a very kind of unusual woman. And I think ahead of her time in many ways, she was an exceptional pianist and, you know, an amazing creative. 
but just she was just in the, that that wrong time. I think she would have blossomed if she was uh, in my position now. And I just yeah, we we'd spoken about it, and it just felt like the right thing. You know, that was her favorite memories were in India. Yeah, so I went there and 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 scattered the ashes about three and a half months later, which is very unusual because I don't know whether you've ever you know scattered ashes, but no. they start as uh, they start as 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 rubble, you know, and then and it's very kind of unusual. And I was sort of given the bag, you know, and um, yeah, and then over those three and a half months, they ground down to dust, which just felt very sort of poignant in a way. It was an incredible experience for me. I mean, I was. Um, you know, I was doing that without any of my family. I was on the Ganges and yeah, it was only a, a small bag of the ashes, but yeah, it was incredibly important for me. And it definitely shaped the way that I started to tell stories because I formed relationships with people in that area that were very unusual, I guess, to anyone else who was wandering through because I, you know, I'd shown them that I had a kind of commitment to their area, you know, that I was invested, that I'd come all this way to, to do this particular task. And I sort of try to keep that on any story I do, just to be truly invested in what people have to say. Mm. What's your, uh, maybe your favorite thing about India? My favorite thing, okay, it's a very, very niche thing, <laughs> is um, the people that go through the trains and say chai, but they, they go chai, 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 chai. And <laughs> they'll say at any time of the day, even late, late into the night when everyone's asleep. Yeah. That is one of my favorite things about India. The other is the sort of, <laughs> if you're at a, it's again, it's at a train station. If you're at a train station, or it's basically only at a train station, and you need directions because the platforms are ever-changing and the delays can sometimes be a day. I don't know, it's, it's mad. The trains haven't even left, but they say they're delayed. And yeah, and these sort of crowds sort of appear around you. And you think you're, for a moment, you think that you're sort of stuck in a big group of people. They're all natural. Then you realize they're all surrounding you because they're so interested to find out what you're up to. And it's very kind of unique experience where you'll push you the crowds and you're sort of apologizing, saying, sorry, sorry, can I just quickly come through? Sorry, sorry, coming through. And then you realize everyone was standing there just, just to basically find out what you were up to. Right. And, oh, there's just so many funny moments. Yeah. It's just such a culture clash. And I, I think it's such a, a funny country. It's always making me laugh. And just the the opportunities that India gives for just candid moments. There's so much more life on the streets there. I don't know why in London we don't have stuff out on the streets. You know, everything's inside. You're always going through doors, you know. Mm -hmm. But what I love about India, yeah, for, for actual street photography is it is all outside on the street and it's ever changing. You know, even if you go back the next day, something new will pop up. It's an amazing place to kind of first start taking pictures but also very challenging to then have such kind of diverse opportunities there and then have to bring, try and not recreate, but try and bring the same standard to a city like London, where it's just a very different way of approaching photography. Mm -hmm. Talk to me about, you have an image of an elephant it's chained to a column. I know that that was a finalist, is that correct? Mm -hmm. World Wildlife Photography. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So tell me, talk to me about that image, like how you came upon that and what happened. That's in Varanasi. That's that's actually it's by the Ganges. Mm -hmm. I think a lot of people think the elephant's inside a temple. It's actually chained to the outside of it, and there's just one kind of like thirty watt light bulb. It felt, <laughs> you know, street lamp there. So it was just very very difficult light situation, and there was this enormous procession. And it was late into the night and I'd heard a rumor from uh, a friend I'd made. And yeah, and he'd said, if you stay up tonight, you're going to be able to see an elephant and camels and there's going to be drums and processions and all this sort of stuff. I'm not someone that is particularly fond of seeing animals used in anything like this. And I anticipated that it would be really difficult. I was the only kind of tourist up at that hour as you'd imagine, I doubt many would be hanging around till 2am. But it was really heartbreaking and really challenging. It just hurts my soul a little bit too much. But that was my first experience of it and not being able to share how I felt about it to anyone. Because it was so immensely disrespectful for me to start kind of saying, well, this, you know, I'm right and you're wrong. But it's also quite unique in the fact that for the people in that community, this is not reflective of the whole of India, but for the people that were there for that, they identified the elephant in the same way 
they identified they sort of identified it as Ganesh you know the god Ganesh it was kind of treated in the same way a human would be you know it had this huge procession and drums and fireworks it was being adored and cheered at but they were just totally disassociated with the impact this was having on the elephant who who was so terrified I mean eyes were swirling around totally bloodshot the level of anxiety you could feel it so much that it really really hurt people were pulling on the trunk and the tail because it's supposed to be good luck and feeding her money which is also supposed to be good luck she was in terrible condition as well she just lost a lot of her muscles she wasn't being fed enough obviously and this went on for for well over six hours Mm. And I took that photograph of the elephant when everyone had gone home to bed and everything had gone quiet. And around me was just a couple of kind of chai stalls, a couple of old boys sort of sitting around, chatting away. And there was the elephant and it was crying. Like actual tears were falling from its face and it was making sounds that I'd only, I could only associate with, yeah, with crying. And the mahout, the man that is responsible for looking after the elephant, he didn't, he didn't seem to understand. In fact, he was asking, he was saying, I don't know why she's reacting like this. And he was speaking to a couple of the guys that were there. But it just, it kept on going up on its hind legs. And so it was incredibly difficult to photograph because I had a 5D Mark III, a Canon 5D Mark III. And I had this very cheap 50 millimeter lens. I think it's like 90 pounds. You know, so the setup wasn't exactly of allowing me much room so I had to stay so still no tripod mm. just a lot of holding my breath right and hoping I get it in between you know the swinging of the trunk and this was just the one moment where she yeah she just stopped and I thought it said a lot more than having her on her hind legs you know that kind of stillness and you don't see the chain you don't see the chain in, until a little bit after you mostly you see the elephant first and then you sort of follow the picture around and that's when you start to see that it's, the elephant's chained. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the same with me. When I first saw that picture, I saw the elephant and the lighting and everything was beautiful. But then you, when you see the chain, it like changes everything. And it's a very subtle detail. Mm. It's at the bottom kind of of the frame. And it's, you know, it's not the brightest part of the picture either. So you kind of don't find it at first. No, I didn't want it to be. I wanted the eye and the shape of the trunk, mm-hmm. that kind of curve to be the main focus and then from that curve you should sort of go up to the top of the picture follow it round. and the last thing i think you see is the chain actually mm-hmm. and then it's so dark in the bottom left corner actually just because of the lack of light so you can only vaguely see the mahout the elephant keeper sort of crouched on the floor and that's when you kind of recognize a sense of scale you know how big these animals are mm-hmm. yeah one of the other pictures you had there was, it just stuck out to me because I've, I've been to Nepal. Mm-hmm. So I've kind of witnessed this too, but kind of, I guess, the open cremation that they do. Mm-hmm. And so you just have this uh, pictures of the legs or the feet of like a grandfather. Mm-hmm. So I don't, I don't necessarily have like a question about that, but I just, for me, it's like I relate it because I've been there. And I think for people that, especially here in the middle of America, like that's a very foreign concept and it's very jarring yes and it's very interesting actually speaking to one of the guys from spi we were chatting about it on saturday saying it's very interesting seeing people's reactions on who have commented on the picture on instagram because people sort of place their kind of cultural values on it Mm -hmm. you know to say that this is wrong because we don't you know we don't do that Mm-hmm. It's very, very interesting, yeah, because I'm not someone that wants to just shock people for the sake of it. I, and I don't think that picture is shocking. You know, war photography is shocking. And for some reason, it doesn't provoke the same reaction that picture does. Because it's someone who has died peacefully, and there's a lot of respect around it. And it's kind of very intimate. And I think people are reacting to that, you know, because there are some incredibly famous photographs out there where you know, limbs have been blown off, there is blood all over the floor, there are lots of dead people, you know, but people don't react to pictures like that, because they say, okay, it's a natural disaster, or it's war, and this is what comes with it, you know. Mm. But I think that picture, people react to very intensely, because they sort of say, this is a private moment of, you know, someone's cremation, and it deserves more respect than that. But if anything, it's much more moving to photograph someone in that moment, you know? It's a different way of looking at, at death that we normally see. And 
completely under the permission of the family. In fact, it was very surreal for me. I know you've, you've been to the ones in Nepal, but I was brought in to have photographs of all of them, like group photographs by their grandfather, mm. which for me, I mean, everyone else is saying it's a culture, you know, culture clash. Or for me, it was an enormous one and one that I just felt really relaxed about within moments. But there was a sort of humour to it, this sort of so far removed from how we deal with death in the UK. You know, everyone was laughing with cups of tea and there was a kind of sense of relief because they brought their grandfather here. The pyres, you know, were all stacked and, you know, and they had someone there to witness it with them, which for them felt like quite a privilege in a way because it was a foreigner and it was a very unusual experience for them, I think, as well. And the moment the fires were lit, we were in total silence and everyone just stayed quiet for those maybe over an hour because it sort of smoulders for a long time. Yeah, but I just remember just standing there with them and showing them the photographs and they all had their phones out taking pictures. And yeah, it was just, it was a very interesting time because I felt that it was immediately normalised because everyone was so kind of accepting of what was going on. It was amazing. How did you find that experience? It's kind of a shock value. I mean, it's shocking in a way. But when you see, we were kind of on the other side of the river from where it was going on. And like you said, it's it's a while. And there's you see the ceremony of it all and like the people that are around it. It's a bit just hard to process at first because you're just like, it's, it's so opposite of here with, you know, how funerals happen here that are casket base and you know burying them in the ground and it's the same like in the middle east for them as well because they have times of intense kind of mourning mm-hmm. and yeah i mean everyone's just got a different way of dealing with death and i think it's good to to see all of them really exposed to all of them yeah yeah i guess for me it's interesting because it's like a lot of times around death it's hidden and secretive yeah for them it's it's very it's public mm. and they have embraced it in a way and it's just it's kind of a foreign concept for me, mm. for a lot of people in the West, I would say. We're not used to just openly dealing with issues. <laughs> we like to sweep stuff under the rug here. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> we like to hide things. Yeah, the, well, especially here. There's a lot of, I'm sorry, 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 you know, terribly sorry, taking up too much time. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Let's talk about the work you did on the coffee where you're kind of covering the process of, of coffee. I don't know. How do you say the name of that forest? Yayu. Yayu forest? Perfect. Okay. Yes. Okay, cool. So tell me about that. Like what, what you did there. So I went to Yayu with Union Coffee and they're an extraordinary coffee brand. And they teamed up with Kew Gardens and the Darwin Trust to kind of work on a, not only was it a, you know, for coffee farming, it was also an environmental program. It was as much about awareness as conservation because Yayu is one of the last remaining wild coffee forests in the world. And global warming will have an enormous impact and is beginning to have an enormous impact on areas like Yayu, where you require a certain altitude and a certain temperature. And a lot of people in the community were at a point where they were quite kind of disenchanted with it all, well, particularly the youth. You know, they wanted to go to Addis or they wanted to travel the world. And the concept of managing a coffee plantation wasn't really in their interests. But now, because of companies like Union Coffee, which are phenomenally ethical, they don't go by the fair trade standards, which mean that whatever the harvest, you will have a minimum payment. So in case that there is one harvest where you know you, you lose out a lot of money, you'll always have a baseline. You know, they've been uh, relatively kind of outspoken, Union Coffee have, about fair trade and they've offered something different which basically allows people to be I think better paid hmm. uh, rather than just having a baseline payment all the time because a lot of the time you make more than the average you know mm-hmm. but it, it was very interesting you know there are a lot of challenges in working like that you know there are a couple of cases where a couple of the workers would try and pick the green coffee cherries not the red ones you know they throw in you know one out of 20 they throw in a green one just to you know get a higher yield and Jeremy, who runs Union, would go in and sort of sit them all down, you know, the kind of coffee workers union or the individual farms, kind of spontaneous visits where you'd see a lot of people rushing around, either hiding the green cherries or, you know, trying to um, prepare our arrival. It was fantastic to see a company that works 
on the ground that really speaks to the people that is very rooted in conservation and not growth for the sake of it. I think it's a very kind of Western thing where we just grow out, try and reach as far as we can. You know, what I feel from union is it's not about that. It's about having a central core, you know, strong foundations and just building on those foundations until you're ready to to take the next step. And they do a phenomenal job at it. And as an assignment, it was just stunning. I mean, the light in Ethiopia was wonderful. And the story was just stunning. It was such an extraordinary job. We had five days, um, a whole lot of dust because there aren't any proper roads. I mean, I should have had a little mask. (laughs) (laughs) And we just went from farm to farm and try and pack in as much as we could. But yeah, the work that I have on my website is just a kind of snippet of of what we saw. Mm -hmm. I'm always interested in kind of manufacturing when people get a kind of a behind the scenes look at like where things come from that we consume especially here being you know an American I feel like we take for granted so much of what we consume on a daily basis whether it's like coffee or clothing or whatever like where it's actually made and how it gets to us mm. so what did you learn I guess just about the production process of coffee that was revealing or eye-opening for you that you didn't know about previously I think one of the most interesting things was watching that process was very new to me, but I sort of thought the process stopped when it was packaged and sent off. But as Jeremy explained to me, he said, all of that can be put to waste by a bad barista Mm. if someone messes up that final cup of coffee. And it was just fascinating to see that that process just, it was as much into the consumer's hands to make it the best possible cup of coffee. You know, if you burnt it or, you know, there were so many ways it could go wrong. I, I sort of I began to see the beauty in it. And in the same way that I speak about photography, Jeremy speaks about coffee. And that was wonderful that we could kind of share those two things together. And I guess the there were these wonderful like pulping stations. That was another amazing thing because, you know, so you've got your coffee cherry and it's obviously got a stone in it. And so they squash all of the coffee cherries and, and then separate them. And you'd have these amazing, huge kind of pits where you'd have all of your coffee pulp and then all the other stuff and they'd be divided up and the colours were just wonderful. As farming goes, coffee is a very, very beautiful one. Mm-hmm. Did Working on the assignment, did it kind of reveal to you maybe like other coffee manufacturers, how conditions for the workers are a lot worse in a way? I think they're getting a lot better. Okay. I mean, for example, Starbucks have received awards for the work that they're doing. They're actually doing very well. And Jeremy was actually going to be part of Starbucks, but he decided to start Union. Interesting. At the same time Starbucks started, Union began. So it makes you think about that long journey. Right. And he's kept the strongest ethical practices, you know. Right. I spoke to Jeremy a lot about this and he said they are getting better. But if you want to get good coffee you have to go about it the way that Jeremy does. It's just not possible. If you don't do it properly, if you don't work with local communities, then you can't get good coffee. And that's always good to know. If you're picking a a fantastic brand, then it's likely that you are really investing in um, in kind of great community projects. But ultimately, I don't know about everyone's practices, but I can recommend Union. They are amazing. And it's some of the best coffee in the world. Love it. Well, let's talk about, uh, so I was following you on Instagram ever since, you know, we've kind of been emailing back and forth. And so I know kind of what you've been doing most recently is you've been doing some work in Iraq with a Muslim pilgrimage. Mm-hmm. Talk to me about what you're doing there. And that's just like the most recent thing you're doing. Yeah. So I got invited by an Iranian documentary company to go to our Bayan, which is the world's largest annual pilgrimage. It's a minimum 25 million Shia Muslims go every single year. And they invited me to go out and film a documentary from the perspective of a photojournalist. And in this case, it's sort of, you know, I'm 24, non-Muslim, white Western woman, and sort of that culture clash and the way that I see it, because obviously, unlike everyone else who was there for religious reasons, I was there for kind of creative cultural reasons and it's almost totally unreported there's almost a sense of like conspiracy theorists around it it was very interesting to hear what people are saying there's a media blackout it's a new dialogue that isn't really being offered you know there's a lot of news surrounding Iraq Iran and Syria and and many of these sorts of regions and they are very much associated with in the case of Iraq and Syria war 
violence, ISIS, and a lot of at this quite kind of divisive point for Muslims, I think, in terms of how the press and people are, you know, the rise of hate crimes and certainly what's happening in America at the moment, particularly around the time of Brexit, I remember there was a real rise in hate crimes against Muslims. I think this is an amazing opportunity to kind of offer a new dialogue, a new look at Islam and kind of to disassociate people a little bit with the war that's happening in Iraq, because an entire country you know, that isn't solely war, there are other things that are going on. It's incredibly important, incredibly important to keep articles going out and news about what's happening in Iraq in the Kurdistan region. But I think it's equally important to show those everyday stories, positive moments, you know, stories that show resilience and strength. And I think Arbayan, this pilgrimage is an incredible experience. Because it's solely funded by Iraqi people, not the government. The government supply all the visas for people and military security, intelligence, all that. But it's the local people that fund it from blankets, food, water, money, medical teams. There's a lot of Iranian support as well. Iranians from the Red Cross will go in to support people there. And it's all based on the power of people and faith. And I think it's universal. You know, I'm very, very excited to start sharing this project because I, for one, had never heard of Arbayan and everyone I've spoken to, and I mean everyone, and I've spoken to quite a lot of people, have never heard of it, but want to know about it and are confused and slightly sort of judgmental of themselves thinking, should I have, I should have heard of this. Why haven't I heard of it? And I just want to kind of pose that question a little bit through this series and the exhibitions that are coming up next year to sort of talk about why is this not incredibly celebrated? You know, Kumbh Mela in, uh, in India, you know, Mecca as well, you know, they're very, very well known. But why is the largest one not spoken about? And that's, that's something to explore. Mm. So there's a pilgrimage. So how far do you find that people are traveling for this pilgrimage? Well, actually, on my flight, there were lots of people from America also Muslims from America. Yeah. But the longest distance people are going from is Basra in southern Iraq, which is around like 250 kilometers, to Karbala, which is just south of Baghdad by about, I think it's just under 100 kilometers away. And everyone is walking, you know, little kids, people who are wheelchair bound, families, groups of women, lone women, lone men. You know, it's very much community. It's all based on the kind of power of positivity. There's just there's so much support. I ran a marathon and I felt it was a very similar kind of intensity. But if you imagine a marathon is only... 26.2. Yeah. If you imagine, yeah, it's only that distance. But if you imagine that atmosphere for the entire way of Arbayan, it's mad. You know, there was someone handing out money just for people who needed it. Hmm. Some families, you know, they're saving up all year to fund the cooking and everything for people walking through. You know, so the sort of date farmers who are in rural Iraq, you know, they're having to slaughter sometimes like 20 sheep during that time. You know, that's phenomenally expensive for anyone. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, there's, it's, it's a really, really extraordinary thing. But it was immensely challenging for me because I was mic'd up and being filmed the entire time I was shooting. So you're kind of talking about street photography and how it's a training for me. Well, this was like next level, you know, (laughs) trying to form kind of meaningful relationships with people, try and make them feel comfortable. You know, I'd have to get the film crews sometimes to back off or, you know, have to have a very open dialogue, but also feel kind of creatively liberated. You know, I wonder how different my work would be had I not had a film crew surrounding me at all times. You know, I've mused on it a little bit. I mean, I think I've produced some of my strongest work, but um, no, I'm very, very proud of of the work I produced in those conditions. You know, I was in a burqa, well, I was in a chador, which looks like a burqa. Burqas cover the full face, but I just had my face exposed, um, not even my hair, like hairline, anything. You know, the weight of that, the discomfort, then having a microphone kind of pinned into my hair so the shadow would drag down my hair it was always quite painful (laughs) and the heat and the dust food poisoning tiredness you know we were on very little sleep intense amount of travel new experiences as well it's very tiring just looking you know when you first arrive in a new place you're always knackered Mm -hmm. and then working with a film crew around me and not being able to speak the language and I think it was the greatest 
challenge. And I think, as we all spoke about it, the documentary sort of became something more than we could have imagined in a way, you know, mainly because I was a woman having to wear a burqa and and having to sort of take on the wear of a Muslim woman, which is a very unique experience for me. You know, I'd always wondered what it was like to kind of wear to wear a chador and a full headscarf and how I would feel. And I was amazed to feel how strong I felt and uh, in solidarity with uh, the millions of other women around me wearing the same. It was amazing. I love that. Especially, I just keep coming back to what, you know, our context here in the US, but obviously Islam has got kind of a bad, has a lot of judgment on it in a negative light here in the US from a lot of people. I think it's cast as the other, you know, I think it's very much, there is a problem. And so we will place it on Muslims. Mm -hmm. It's incredibly dangerous time, incredibly dangerous time. And I think this is why this kind of series comes at a very important moment, really. I haven't visited America before. I'd be very interested to, to sort of hear what people would have to say just on the street. You're stopping people. But yeah, it, it is scary, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm trying to think. So you did a film and stills. So are you going yeah. to release both of these at the same time? Yes, hopefully it'll, they'll both come together at the same time. So we've got shows in so far in Iraq, Iran, France, and Italy, and then obviously getting together the London show. And we'll just try and keep it going from there, basically. Yeah, and the documentary, everyone's out in Iran at the moment putting it together. So I'm only there on WhatsApp on calls and email to actually be able to see how it's all been stitched together. But I'm sort of entrusting them with that responsibility. I wish we could visit each other, but it's just not possible at the moment with work. Mm -hmm. But yes, it should be, it'll all be ready for, for next year. Fantastic. Which is nerve wracking. Yeah, I mean, everyone, I can't wait to see it. People are going to see everything, you know? Yeah, from illness to, there's a lot of humor. I'm quite silly, so it should should be vaguely (laughs) amusing. And I'm really open. Like, you'll hear a lot of my frustrations about wearing the chador, which I'm sure will be shared by a few Muslim women because they can slip a lot. I don't know the technique, but they're always falling off, you know? (laughs) Right. And every time I moved it, I'd have them, you know, the sound guy. Hussein, he'd be getting, he'd be saying, stop moving it. Well, I I have to, my hair's been pulled out. Yeah. Yeah. And it certainly shows the pace in which I work and the energy that I have, which can be quite full on. And yeah. And just how my views change. It was very much kind of relaxed about everything. You know, I didn't have any kind of views beforehand. I didn't have any experiences or I didn't even know about Albayan, but it's just interesting to see how things sort of shaped up as the, the days went by you know, became more and more affected by what I was witnessing. Mm. It was incredibly spiritual and overwhelming. And towards the end, I become incredibly emotional. I think it's partly to do with the lack of sleep as well. I am <laughs> exhaustion, I, absolute exhaustion, but I do, yeah, I do get quite emotional. I guess real quick on that, like what would be maybe like something that when you went into this project, you had an idea, maybe a concept about Islam, but then afterwards it it totally changed your mind about what Islam is. I didn't have any misconceptions. What I did find very interesting was much more about Iraq than Islam. You know, for me, I've never had any kind of misconceptions surrounding Islam and I've read up a lot and I've spoken to all my friends and, you know, that for me was, I understood that the actual kind of the Shia Muslim kind of teachings that I wasn't as familiar with. But again, that didn't take long and we had a book and I, you know, read up and all of that. But Iraq, I didn't know anything about, you know, the only references I had were, you know, the Iraq war. And this is what I'd grown up with, you know, Mm -hmm. you know, and there were trigger words, you know, that I, you know, Saddam Hussein, all these sorts of things I associated with Iraq, date farming, you know, mutton stews and the friendliest people I've ever met in the world were, were three things I hadn't expected. <laughs> you know, they were the friendliest people I've ever met. Yeah. And I've met a lot of really friendly people. Mm. They were just, it reminded me quite a lot of how people are in Romania because Romania have a lot of, they're given a real bad reputation. There's a lot of racism surrounding Romanian people in Europe. It's the most phenomenal country, most beautiful people, incredible food one of my favorite places in the world. And I remember just even speaking to Romanian people here in London saying how much I love your country. And they sort of look at me and say, you do? Really? Very kind (laughs) of self-deprecating. And in Iraq, it felt like that too. 
they were just wanted to sort of say, please share the message, you know, that we're doing okay, that we're strong. Mm. I think of the people I asked, every single one of them had a son, father, cousin, brother who was fighting ISIS in every village and town we went to. They lined the main road coming into it where you have all the, um, the lights, the street lamps, or in the case of the rural areas, the date palm trees. You have posters of all of the men that have lost their lives. And it's really hard, actually. When you're coming into a main town, you're potentially driving for 15 kilometres. And you think of the speed when you're going at you know certain speed in the car, that <laughs> with the lampposts. And that is a, that's a person, mm-hmm. you know? And no one had to explain to me when we first started driving what it was. I knew instantly and just all these faces. And there's an immense amount of suffering there, but they're so resilient. Mm. I don't know how they do it. You know, especially during Arbaean, you know, so many of the men aren't there. And so many people walking, a lot of the women are walking with uh, photographs of their children. You know, a lot of Iraqi mothers would be wearing full black burqa with a long veil with a candle and holding a photograph of their son who they'd lost in the war. So yeah, it was a very challenging trip. I had never expected to be faced with a lot of the things I was faced with and certainly felt very isolated because, you know, there wasn't any press there other than on the final night in the main city, you know, there was like Al Jazeera and people like that. But, you know, it was very much just myself, the Iranian team and in Iraq. And it was as liberating as it was, uh, isolated you know i love seeing work like that done because i mean for me anything that can bring the humanity that where we can you can feel like you can relate to somebody else and people that feel like they're on opposite sides or whatever or just even take some of the mystery out of mm. another culture i think is helpful because it takes some of that fear that we build up of the unknown yeah because mystery is that's quite interesting i never thought about it yeah that sense of mystery can also be quite dangerous in many ways mm-hmm. yeah that's very very poignant actually yeah so we just got a few or three more questions here for you real quick as we kind of wrap up. Since you've traveled a ton, I was going to just kind of get some, maybe a little bit of insider wisdom from you. Of, I'm always curious when you travel, how it changes people or how it increases your worldview. And I think here in the U.S., we can get very focused on our own issues and we don't get to see the bigger picture. So I guess for you, like, what have you learned? Maybe something, this might be a silly question, but what have you learned maybe about like happiness since you've traveled so much? Because I think when you do travel, you tend to learn like a lot about what makes people happy. It's all very universal. Yeah. I mean, some of the main things I've learned from travel are you normally get ill in countries, right? You can't help it. <laughs> the remedies, that's always something I've always quite enjoyed. When you're ill, it's amazing what you get given in certain countries, There'll be the kind of the mother's recipe. I've always loved home cooking, home remedies. That's something I've always been very, very interested in. The other things that I really learn, just the way people approach, there's a very, very big difference to how people communicate here in London and how people communicate in other countries, particularly places like Iraq, for instance. I obviously had a translator, but the clarity of your dialogue is amazing. I ask something. And they ask me and we just talk. There's nothing more to it. There's no ego. It's just speaking straight from the heart. And that's something which I always try to do. And I know it isn't possible for everyone to do, you know, to speak straight from that point, that place. But I've always enjoyed visiting countries like that because I feel like it's a very authentic experience, you know. Mm -hmm. There's no lying. It's not guarded. It's just straightforward And that's all I really want in life, you know, Mm -hmm. other things that I've learned, certainly my own, um, my understanding of myself traveling certainly helps you, you know, sort of get to know your own quirks and the things that you're drawn to more. Mm -hmm. I know that I'm instantly drawn to women and children. I can't help that. I sometimes stop myself. I've stopped doing it now. Whatever I'm drawn to, I should photograph because that's what I'm about. You know, I've got to continue being true to myself as an artist. Mm. What are some challenges you're facing that you've run across in just having a sustainable career and doing this type of work? One of the reasons that we do this podcast is helping people that want to do photography understand how to have a photographic life, how you can create this work, but also still pay your bills 
there's a great term called career tapas. Mm-hmm. And I think that is the best way to describe it. Like small plates of food, you know, you have to do bits of everything. So if it's private commissions, if it's exhibitions, if it's a book, if it's prints, if it's workshops, if it's being part of a collective hosting competitions, if you need to do a wedding, if you need to do product photographs, you know, even running Instagram, it's the profitable thing in terms of, you know, your sharing content and you're being able to reach people that you wouldn't be able to reach before. You have to do all of them and you have to be prepared to do all of them. I don't believe that it's possible just to do one of them. Maybe there are some incredibly fortunate people who just can focus on one all the time, but I'm sure when they started out, they had to do a bit of everything. I particularly enjoy doing a bit of everything. I wouldn't want to just do one area because they all help me develop and grow and they all link up in some way. They cross over at points. I'm yet to photograph a wedding. So if anyone who's listening to this podcast <laughs> would like a wedding photographer, I'd be very interested to, to see what it's like. But yeah, I think it's just important. That you just try all of these things, you know, being freelance is very different as well to, to being with an agency, a news agency or whatever it may be. So I try to just to do it on my own for now. But yeah, that's, that's the way to do it. You have to bounce between them all and yeah, and just keep moving really. It's exciting. It's exhilarating. Right. It feels stressful, but it's always rewarding. Yes. And it's such a luxury to have this career. Really, it's, it's amazing. I love it. Fantastic. Well, I know you're busy and you got a lot of stuff going on. So I just wanted to thank you so much for taking the time to chat. Really honored to speak with you. So thank you. It's lovely to chat to you too. It's been a wonderful interview. Good. Thanks. Really lovely questions. Thank you.